Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. As we come to the end of chapter 5, we're nearing the end of the book of 1 Timothy. One more chapter, chapter 6. We're not quite done with chapter 5 yet. But Paul wrote 1 Timothy, and his goal in the book is to give instruction to Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, on how to build up the local church. Paul's goal is to give instruction to the local pastor on what he needs to do in order for that church to do well. Does that make sense? So there's a lot of personal things to Timothy about how he needs to act, how he needs to behave, but all of it is because Paul cares about the church at Ephesus. Now, obviously, he cares about Timothy too, right? And in fact, he calls him his son. He, they're, they're, they've traveled together. They've spent time together. They've ministered together. They're obviously very close. So Paul has a love for Timothy that is very sweet and that is very strong. But that's really not why he's writing to Timothy. He's writing to Timothy because of the church that Timothy is serving at. Because Paul's Paul's work as an apostle is to build, to establish the church. And so he knows that he does that by writing letters to the churches, but he also knows that he needs to do that by writing letters to the pastors. And so in the process of writing to Timothy, of course, what you see is that many of the things that he says apply directly to the church as well. So the church is instructed in many things along the way as Timothy is instructed. And the reason for this is in part simply because the work of the pastor is to lead the church. So Paul's goal In the letter, Paul's goal for Timothy and for the church in Ephesus is ultimately the conversion of sinners. We saw that early on in the book. And he sees a lot of things come into play in how that happens. So if you think of of a church and you, you can... Think of Revelation. You remember the beginning of Revelation? There's letters to the churches, and each church is addressed with its particular strengths and weaknesses by Jesus through John, who's writing down the, what has been revealed to him, right? And each church has its own character. Each church has its own specific strengths and weaknesses. Some of them are doing well, and some of them are not doing well, Right? We can look around, we can see that today, that there are churches that are doing well, that are healthy, and there are churches that are not doing well. And what Paul desires is that the church would do well so that the gospel would be established, so that it would go forth in power, so that God's people would be called in. So the conversion of sinners is, uh, is central to his goal, 
But it's not just sinners. It's, it's God's people. Right? Who will be saved in the end? The elect. God's chosen ones will be brought in. And how will they be brought in? Well, God has established his church for the building of his kingdom, for the, for the proclamation of his word. And so the peace and purity within the church body that comes about through their love and the sincere faith that they have, that's central to the conversion of sinners as, as Paul is seeking. And that takes the form of prayerfully adopted outward behaviors and inward attitudes. Right? So, so our hearts and our, and our outward actions are of course brought together as we see over and over again in the, in the Bible. And there's, there's these really practical instructions in this book to Timothy about how things are supposed to work. But the only way that they actually work is if the inward matches the outward, right? I mean, you can't establish the outward without the inward also being established first or at the same time. Otherwise, what you have is hypocrisy, right? So there's all sorts of there's all sorts of hypocrisy in the world, in and out of the church, among Christians and non-Christians alike. There's always hypocrisy. There's people who look to put on a show on the outside of having a particular care for um, good behavior, right? But who on the inside are filled with all sorts of evil desires. That, at its core, is hypocrisy. Saying one thing, doing another, that's hypocrisy. Uh, we, we can see hypocrisy all over the place. We can, it's easy for us to recognize some of the time, right? Other times, hypocrisy is hidden. And, and we'll spend more time on that next week as we, as we get to uh, the very end of chapter 5. But what I want us to see this week is that these practical instructions that Paul gives to Timothy are concerning elders and pastors uh, and what to do about their money and their sin. Right? And as we think about such really such obvious uh, in the flesh, tangible kinds of things like money, that the, the hearts of those who are being addressed are always right, right cheek by jowl next to the practical things for Paul. He never, he never stops bringing those two things together. So let's hear what Paul says to Timothy about money, the money of pastors, and then the sin of pastors. Please stand for the reading of God's word from 1 Timothy 5, 
17 through 21. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we have double honor, right? Double honor compares to not doubled honor, right? You got me more water, thanks. I'm going to need it again this week, I think. Yeah, double... Double honor compares to single honor, right? And where did we see single honor? Does anybody remember? Any of you kids remember where we saw who was to be honored? Now we've got the people who are to be double honored. But who was to be honored? You remember, Henry? God is to be honored. Absolutely, God is to be honored. God is to be triple honored, maybe. Infinitely honored, even. Whenever you guys see just uh, a reminder, anytime you see three things, three a word repeated three times in a row, like where it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's the way that the authors, in well, that Hebrew uh, emphasizes things. It's like putting the, uh, the, the font in, you know, 106 point and putting it in all caps and then putting 75 exclamation points after it, the way you're never supposed to text or type online, that's what that is. So honor, honor, honor to God, yes. But who remembers what we saw in our passage earlier, because it wasn't God actually, uh, who had the single honor earlier on in Timothy? Widows. Certain widows were to receive honor, right? And then here now we have double honor to who? Certain elders. Now notice it's not just widows are to be honored and elders are to be double honored, but there was there were qualifications or there were criteria added on to which widows were to be honored, and there are also criteria added on to which elders are to be double honored, right? Which elders? Double honor compares to previously the widows that served the church receiving receiving honor. And then here, not just elders, but the ones that rule well, and especially those that work hard at preaching and teaching, which is to say pastors. Because the pastors are the... uh, the elders that work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, there have been 
there have been uh, mistakes made in the church at uh, various times with honor, right? And not just mistakes, but sins. We love to honor those who can do things for us, right? It's sort of like hospitality, practicing hospitality, not to strangers, but to the people who can pay you back, you know? Well, I mean, okay, good. I mean, you're you're practicing hospitality. It's not really hospitality, though, if they can pay you back. Hospitality is when you, you show it to strangers and to people who can't ever pay you back. Here we have this this description of the office of elder, and we've already seen who is supposed to be considered as possibilities for the office of elder and who should be eliminated, not able to serve as elders. And then you get to, there are elders, and there's supposed to be something about how we treat them, and, and immediately we begin to face temptations about treating them either with more honor than we should or with less honor than we should. Now, how can we treat them with more honor than we should when they're, when, when they're worthy of double honor? Well, the, the first and most obvious way is if we're showing double honor to those that are not working hard, who are not ruling well, right? That are not working hard at preaching and teaching. Showing double honor in that circumstance is not what this text is telling us to do. So the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, just as we saw with the widows. So here, the honor that we're speaking of has an outward manifestation with the giving of money, right? Providing financially is part of what Paul is talking about. And the reason that we can tell so clearly in this particular passage is because he then immediately says, verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now, kids, do you know what an ox is? It's a big, big animal, right? Kind of like a cow, but even bigger. Have you ever seen an ox? Do they have oxen at our zoo? No, no oxen. You know what an ox is? Okay, but they're, they're big. And what, them, uh, what, what they were used for at that time was threshing. Now, how does an ox thresh? Anybody have any idea? <laughs> do you know how? Uh, do you know how you can thresh by hand? Remember that the, the that the disciples were walking through the fields and they took some heads of grain and they were eating them on the Sabbath, and that the Pharisees and, and some of the Jews got upset by this? Well, if you, take, if you take, see, we're so far removed 
from farming and from the world that these people lived in that we just have to go and we have to learn some really basic stuff about how the world works first. Okay, but maybe you guys have had corn on the cob, right? Have any? Have, how many of you have had corn on the cob? Okay, so corn on the cob, you, you start with a big ear of corn and it's covered with what? Green leaves, right? It's got, it's got to be shucked before you can eat it. Do you guys, you kids ever help with shucking the corn? You gotta pull off all of the out, the outer stuff. Okay. If you don't pull off all of the outer stuff, if you just grabbed a head of corn, is that, no, is that a head? Ear, thank you, goodness. <laughs> you grab an ear of corn and, and you break it off of the corn stalk, and you put it up to your mouth, and you take a big bite, that's going to be gross. You're not going to get the food. And it's the same with most every kind of grain. It has to be threshed first. It has to be, the grain has to be removed from the other parts of the plant that you don't want to eat. And that's even true with wheat, right? There's these shells over top of the kernels that need to be removed. So whether it's the, the, the corn that needs to be shucked, or there's always some sort of work that goes into processing, making these grains edible. Even before cooking, even before grinding them into flour, they have to have pieces, parts removed from them that are not edible. That was why the Pharisees got upset with the disciples. So what you would do if you wanted a, a quick snack and you were walking through the field was not just slide your hand up and, and pop the kernels into your fist. You ever do that when you're walking through a field and you got the grass and you can just slide your fingers and you get the... They all pop off, pop, 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 right? And, and then they're in this little thing, this little bundle up at the top of your fingers. You don't just have to pull them off, but then you have to rub them in your hand. And as you rub them in your hand, you do the work of separating the kernel from the shell. That's, that's the work. And you can do that with one little handful and it's pretty easy, but you know, you gotta work at it. You gotta break them apart, break those shells, and then you gotta blow them away. But if you harvest a whole field, you're not gonna stand there and rub with your hands and blow away the leftover shells. You'd rub your hands away. Right? Even with gloves, you're not going to be able to do that. And so we needed bigger, better ways of doing it. And so people used oxen to do it. And what did they do? Well, they would set up uh, a big wheel. And the oxen would turn the wheel and it would roll over the grain. And the oxen would go in a circle. Oxen going in a circle, pushing the big wheel, breaking the shells off of the grain. And you could do a whole bunch at once that way. 
Okay, so kids, you following along with me? And in the Old Testament, one of the things that it says is, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now, where have you seen muzzles? Have any of you seen a muzzle before? Muzzles go on what? Dogs. That's where we see muzzles today, right? And a muzzle on a dog keeps the dog from barking, right? And biting. Yes. You can't open your mouth right as a dog when you got a muzzle on your mouth. And it's the same with the oxen. So to muzzle the oxen while it's threshing would keep the ox from what? Can't open his mouth. Why would the why would the ox want to open its mouth while it was doing the work of threshing? Anybody? To breathe. Well, no, it can breathe through its nose. To eat. To eat the grain that's being threshed. Right? So while it's going around in a circle, it's, it's, it's creating all of this good food. It's making it good to eat. And the scripture says, don't muzzle the ox. Don't keep it from eating while it's doing the work of making good food. You shall not muzzle, he says, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So he puts two things together. Uh, he, Paul addresses this also in 1 Corinthians, and I want to read you a couple of verses, 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 11. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. So he brings up the same Old Testament law, right? And he says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So Paul goes back to that Old Testament command about the oxen. He says, don't muzzle them. And he, and he takes that and he brings it forward and he applies it to us. And he says, if that's the way that we care about oxen, then surely we care much more about people receiving the appropriate benefit from the work that they do, right? Now, this has application all over the place today. And I think that um, there's probably some... uh, Some good, some good things that can and should be said in that first, if I were preaching on that first Corinthians passage about capitalism and how it's, and how, and how the business environment works today. Okay? 
but we're not there. We're in 1 Timothy. So we won't focus on people who, uh, we won't focus on the plowman and, and the hope that he's supposed to have. We're gonna, we're gonna just gonna skip right over that and we're gonna come to what Paul is dealing with in 1 Timothy more directly, which is the double honor that elders who rule well and who work hard at preaching and teaching are to receive. Skipping forward just a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 9.14, Paul makes it explicit when he says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So I don't want to pass on from this without a bit of comment on money. Uh, the love of money is such a problem in our society that everything seems to come down to money. And I have often had conversations with people who talk about church or talk about uh someone else who won't go to church, and the reason why they have a very negative view of church, is what's brought up is money. Because what they say is, you know, well, I went to church one time, and or the first time I went to that church, the pastor was talking all about money, right? Well, here we are, and... If anybody were to come to church for the first time here today, all we're talking about is money, basically. And not just money, but why you should pay me. Right? I mean, not to put too fine a point on it. Or at least you should if I am ruling well and if I am working hard at preaching and teaching. And that's a big if. So when everything comes down to money, if we worship money, then this just becomes a competition. And it turns into this zero-sum game where the question is, you know, how much can I batter out of you? Right? How much power do I have to guilt you into giving me things? When that's, when money is all that it is, right, then it's just this relationship of, uh, of extortion, if you will, right? Or at the very least that, um, there better be a really good reason. You better be getting some real benefits from being a part of the church that you'd be willing to part with your hard earned cash in order to give to it, knowing that it's coming, ultimately, a good portion of it to me. That means that I ought to be providing an awfully good benefit to you. And, and when, when money is all that it comes down to, for, for certain men, there's an easy way to solve the problem of feeling pressured to give up some of their money that they worship and want to keep for themselves. And that is simply to remove themselves from the situation because they see no benefit to what is being offered at church for them, right? 
And so their complaint, regardless of whether the regardless of what the preaching happens to be like when money is brought up, whether it is a health and wealth gospel call to give me your money and you'll get the reward back from God somehow, all right? Or whether it's uh, you know, the pastor driving the nicest car in the church and making more money than everybody else in the church, all right? Whether it's clearly greed on the part of the pastor or whether it's simply faithful teaching on money which is addressed many times in scripture and the necessity of the church sharing the the financial burdens of one another and also providing for the needs of the whole body and the widows and the pastors and elders, right? So you could be preaching total junk, garbage, bad theology, selfish, greedy, give me money, or you could be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and the practical outworking of that with how we're to handle our money, And either way, the man that hates God and loves his money looks at it and says, I'm out of here. Quit trying to get my money. Right? And so when you hear somebody complaining about the church being all about money, keep that in mind. You don't know what he heard. (laughs) He's going to spin it one way no matter what. Now, Some men have thus have seen this problem and have reacted to the problem by demanding that pastors live on very, very little. Okay? This is not a problem in the PCA. It is a problem some places still today, even in America that's incredibly rich. Okay? So I, I want to be careful not to only address things that don't apply to us. But here we are. This problem of uh, wanting to keep the pastor poor primarily happens in Baptist churches. On the other hand, there is the problem of wanting to make the pastor rich in an inappropriate way that happens primarily among Presbyterian churches. Can I generalize in this way? And have you, have you seen both of these problems? Um, I've, uh, I've had opportunity to interact with pastors who are serving in churches where uh, it's a Baptist church and the deacons control the purse strings uh, absolutely, and who have no desire for the pastor who is working very hard to receive the, the, the wages. Now, part of the reason for this is because by controlling the money, you control practically everything, Right? you can keep the pastor fully dependent on you and unable to uh, step out 
by faith without first getting over his fear of losing what little money he has. So notice I'm not totally dismissing the sin of the pastor in those circumstances where they're, where they're being abused and controlled by the deacons and their, and their control of the purse strings. Okay, There is still sin, the sin of fear for the most part on the part of those pastors. But <clears throat> here Paul is saying they're to receive double honor if they're ruling well. They're to receive double honor. And, he, and he, it's so obviously clear that he's talking about money. Right? In fact, I've even, I've even come across pastors saying that pastors should make their money in an outside job. Bivocational should be the standard, according to these men, for pastors. Okay? Now, there is obviously... Uh, no prohibition against men having two jobs and serving in the ministry and making their money in an outside job. Paul did this by, kids, do you remember? What did Paul like to make? Or maybe not like, but what did Paul make for money? Any of you kids know? Tents. That's right, Paul made tents. And that's how he made money and he supported himself and, and other men in the ministry work by doing that outside work. So Paul is not prohibiting pastors from doing this. And in many churches, I've done it in the past, and I'd be willing to do it again. But what he's saying is that it is not right to demand it of pastors or to make it seem more holy. There's nothing somehow super righteous about not accepting money for the work that you're doing in the ministry. And that's why I read that last verse verse in 1 Corinthians 9.14 where it says, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. God has always provided for the religious leaders out of the pockets of his people. So you go back into the Old Testament, and I was just reading about this um, in Joshua. We've been reading Joshua in family devotions. And one of the things that you see in Joshua is uh, what can get very tedious Joshua starts out sort of exciting, right? But then all of a sudden, you think you're reading this exciting storybook, and all of a sudden you get into Joshua distributing the land. You guys remember that in reading through Joshua? And you've got all 12 tribes, and they all are to receive their inheritance in the promised land. And so it's, it, it lays out the boundaries and says from this city to this city to this mountain to this hill to this river and back up again. That was the land that went over to the tribe of Benjamin, right? And then from this river to this city to this city and including this city and 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 and their surrounding villages, all of that goes to the tribe of Naphtali, right? And And you just, oh, it's just this long, long 
explanation of exactly what land goes to what tribe. And the only tribe that doesn't get any land is what tribe? The Levites. Now, who are the Levites? The Levites were the people who ministered at the tabernacle and in the temple. The priests and and the Levites were the religious leaders, the pastors and elders, and, and, and they didn't receive any plot of land when it was divided. But you know what happens in Joshua right after you get done dividing out all the land? Then all of a sudden, they are all, all those tribes that just got their land are told, okay, now it's time for you to give some of it to the Levites. You need to pick some cities to give to the Levites because they need a place to live even if we're not going to give them any inheritance. (laughs) And so... God could have just given the Levites another plot of the land, right? But instead, he gives it all away to the people, and then he says, okay, now you give some place for the Levites to live. And there's a, there's a really helpful instruction to us in that. You guys have all been given... Jobs and houses and, and, and an inheritance from the Lord. And then, the moment that you receive them, I come to you as a pastor and I say, okay, now, now give some of it up for the sake of me. I could say for the sake of the church, and I could say for the sake of the building up of the kingdom, and, and so on and so forth. But the fact of the matter is that I am the pastor, and I am the only one who's getting paid my whole living from you. Right? And so let's just put our finger on it. It's for me. Some of it. Why is it helpful? Well, it's helpful for me so that I remember that I'm supposed to be working hard. It's helpful for me so that I remember that you have given to me wages that I'm supposed to be worthy of. And it's helpful for you so that you realize that I have given you something. And that it is of value. That, that Just like the oxen going around in a circle and he has to work hard at moving that stone, produces food for, the, for you to eat, right? So I, as a pastor, am to be producing something that's actually of so much benefit to you that you don't want to muzzle me, that you want me to receive the benefit that comes back from it. Right? And it's helpful to me so that I remember that God is the one who provides through his people. And so that I am humble as I rely on him and his people 
to provide for me. Now, the minute that I begin talking about money, we lose track of the fact that what we're actually talking about is double honor. Honor, right? Is at the core of this. And it's very, very easy for us to separate the provision that I've been talking about from honor. And in fact, we often will use money to separate honor. (laughs) I gave you money. What more do you want from me, pastor? Well, if it comes down to a choice and you're only willing to give honor or money, I'd prefer the honor. But Paul says that you honor by giving money. Now, I talked about how certain, primarily Baptists, have abused this situation to, to, to take away from pastors what they should be receiving as a reward for their faithful work. Okay, On the flip side, you've got the Presbyterians, and the Presbyterians love to pay the pastor so that he won't do the work that he should be doing. Now, that's pretty harsh, about as harsh as I was on the Baptists, right? (laughs) Pay the pastor so that he won't do the work that he's supposed to be doing. What do I mean by that? Well, remember how often we like people ruling over us? It's about 0.0. 0% of the time, right? And who is supposed to be receiving double honor? Those who rule well. How about, pastor, you mind your own business, we'll make sure that you get the money you need to live in a nice house, and, to, and we'll still come to church and everything, but you don't rule. Okay? That's, that's more typically... The way that the Presbyterians can... Now, now I, what I want you to see about both the Baptists and the Presbyterians is that what they're doing is they're using money to control the pastor. You see? It's the same in the end. One controls it by not giving. The other controls by giving. And this is why one of the requirements for the elders is that they not be lovers of money. How do we honor our elders? One of the ways is by making sure that they're financially provided for. It's the primary way that we demonstrate in a way that is visible externally our honor. We don't we don't need to bow down, we don't need to we don't need to give special titles. We don't need to do all sorts of things that are meant to demonstrate honor. If we just provide generously, honorably, for those who are, are earning it. 
right? But the moment that you begin to talk about money, Paul immediately then begins to switch and talk about what else? Accusations against the elders. Now, I've already done that several times. I talked about how there are men who come in who won't go to church, and the reason they say is because, and right here is where the accusation starts, right? Because I went there, and all he did was talk about how he needed more money or something. And remember I told you to, to have clear in your mind that the man who loves money is always going to say the same thing? Well, now I carry on and I say, and also, by the way, the very next verse says, don't receive an accusation against a pastor except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So somebody says that about some pastor that you don't know, some church that you don't know, and I know the temptation is to say, oh, well, that's really too bad you know, I'm sorry you had that experience. Um, what I want you to realize is that you are you are forced at this point to walk a fine line. On the one hand, between not simply saying that that man who says that to you is a liar because you don't know what he heard, right? And on the other hand, not accepting accusations against an elder on the basis of one witness. That's a hard conversation to have, isn't it? And this is not the only kind of accusation that you'll hear from one person about a particular pastor, set of elders, church, etc. Where if what they're saying is true, it is indeed bad news. Right? A bad church, bad pastors, bad elders. But on the other hand, you're not supposed to accept any kind of accusation except on the basis of more than one witness. Now, it's not really talking to you here. I mean, it is, but what I want you to see is that really what's going on here is Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's talking about accusations that come against the elders in that church made within the church. That's the primary application here. What what happens is you've got people who uh, get really angry and say something absolutely terrible about one of the pastors or elders or multiple of them, and... Timothy is being instructed and told, look, you can't, you can't just, every time somebody says something bad, take that as the gospel truth. You must have more than one witness. Now, I, I, we're building up the necessity of honoring the elders and pastors. We're building up the necessity of paying them, being part of that honor. We're building up a protection against uh, accusations and attacks, right? We're really building up a very nice 
position for the pastors and elders. But what everybody points out here at this point is the necessity of recognizing how often nasty, brutal, evil, slanderous attacks come against faithful pastors and elders. And so the reason that this protection is built up is because the moment that the elder begins to rule well, people get angry. And so you have these kinds of lies being told. The moment that you have uh, the pastor working hard at proclaiming, preaching, and teaching, you have the gospel being the stone that people stumble against and them hating the messenger and trying to shoot the messenger, right? The moment that you discipline people in the church, it leads straight to the elders being slandered. The moment you stand up for truth, it leads to you earning enemies. And so... All of this is assuming good work. There will be nasty, negative attacks that come that the, that the pastors and elders just have to bear. And it's the, it's the, it, when you connect this to him saying honor and double honor for those who do this work well, I want you to realize how important this is for my emotional well-being that as I undergo nasty, brutal attacks, not for anything that I've done wrong, but for things that I have done right, that I need your help in staying sane. Do you understand? Because if, you, if, if I don't have you behind me saying, no, then I'm left... Without honor, I'm left. Now, by God's grace, I will survive. I, I, but you see how they connect, right? You see how you're supposed to give the honor and you're supposed to protect against the, uh, the false accusations is because that's part of honoring. But I love what Calvin adds here to this idea that it's not just the fact that when you do good, you end up bearing these, 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 these slanders. Um, I saw a quote this morning from a man saying that the poison of scorpions is in their tail and that the poison of slanderers is underneath their tongue. And it is poisonous. But Calvin goes on, Actually, he starts before that, and he says, um, he says, from the difficulty of their office, sometimes they, pastors and elders, either sink under it, or stagger, or halt, or blunder, in consequence of which wicked men seize many occasions for finding fault with them. So, Calvin starts with the, the, the reality that these men are, 
pastors, your pastor, me, we're, we're sinners, and that we make all kinds of dumb mistakes, and that we get weary, and then we just stop working hard. I mean, if you, you can't talk about halting without connecting it to that verse where he says, you know, the ones that rule well and that are, that are working hard at preaching and teaching. And then he says that wicked men seize that opportunity to find fault with them. I've seen this where men's actual failings are like blood in the water for the sharks. Right? Have you seen it? Forget pastors. I mean, you've seen it on the playground, right? Isn't isn't that like... uh, the whole point of a lot of books about kids where it's showing you know, the sinful, fallen nature of mankind that the moment somebody shows a weakness that everybody piles on them. And so sometimes pastors are fired and it's nasty. It's brutal. And the accusations against them are, and the fault finding are just crazy. And really, they have plenty of faults. Maybe they should have been fired. Maybe they should have been removed. Maybe they should have moved on. <laughs> but instead, it turns into this feeding frenzy. Now, I've built up all these protections, and I've gone too long. I want to end by saying the discipline that then Paul begins to go into is more intense. Just as the protections are to be more carefully established for elders, so the discipline is more intense for elders that are found in sin. They're to be rebuked in the presence of all. Now, what that means is that nothing could be further from the purpose of Paul, from the purpose of this passage, than to protect pastors against the consequences of their own sins. I have noted before that Cincinnati has very little honor for elders and pastors, for their time, for their teaching for their preaching, or their ruling. And I believe that there is a connection between the Roman Catholic abuse scandal of the last... I mean, how many... Yeah, how many decades, centuries, are we going to say this has been going on? Surely we saw at the time of the Reformation that the Reformers already saw the sexual abuse that was rife within the Roman Catholic Church, right? And so, here we are in a Roman Catholic city, and what I want you to see is that now it all of a sudden bursts out into the open again in the last, in the last couple of decades, right? The, the scandal of the abuse that's been perpetrated on people by the clergy in the Roman Catholic Church. And I don't mean to say it's the only place that it happens, but I want you to, what I want you to see is that in this Roman Catholic city, 
where there has been abuse, and it has been those who have been in leadership are the ones who are doing it, and then they have not been rebuked in the presence of all, but rather protected in their sin and in their position and continued to have honor after honor after honor heaped on them, such that the man, even this morning, it's 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 international news what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church with the with the abuse scandal, okay? And it and what's going on? The man who is in charge of the investigations is himself one of the abusers. Okay? And the news this morning is one of the one of the top people in the Roman Catholic Church saying that the Pope, our current, the current Pope, knew about him. So what am I, why do I bring that up? Well, we're in a Roman Catholic city. We cannot think about this passage without looking around us and seeing what it means, not just for our church, but for the people around us. So when you look around and you see, as I have, and I have been embittered about this, okay, that there is no respect for church leaders in Cincinnati. None. There is no honor to be found. I don't mean that I'm not paid or that other pastors aren't paid. I just mean there is... There is, no, there, there is no care for what you've done. People feel no responsibility to give back to you what you have sacrificed in giving to them in any way, shape, or form. Okay? Why does that happen? Well, it's no surprise when you live in a city where, the, where it's Roman Catholic and where the, the, the spiritual leaders have been protected from the consequences of their sin, shown partiality, right? And continued to be honored rather than having their sin rebuked in the presence of all. And so if we're going to be a witness in Cincinnati, it's going to look like us being totally different as a church and as leaders, that you as a church, as a congregation, will hold your pastors to a higher standard than the Roman Catholic Church has. Right? And that then you will honor them. And that's such sweet work. Because it it doesn't require you to honor hypocrites. It doesn't require you to pretend. It just requires you to be honest. And then to give of yourself to those who have given to you. Let's pray.